0: Suzanne Lang, bringing you a novel idea. Carrie Blakeger was an intense young girl who got into figure skating, was competing at a national level, yet ended up at times living and working on the streets, addicted to heroin, and eventually incarcerated for selling it. She was also an intelligent overachiever, excelled in school, where she was involved with journalism at Cornell University. Her memoir is Corrections in Ink and chronicles her descent and life in prison, as well as her emergence from there to become the journalist she is today, and we will visit with her in just a minute. Later in the show, we'll talk with author Diana Grayer and illustrator Anianila Montefalcon on their collaboration, a book for not just young people, Kina's first speech Our Blackness Will Never Fade. It's a novel idea. Carrie Blenkinger is a Texas based journalist who works with the Marshall Project, the news organization that brings focus to issues about the criminal justice system and those incarcerated within it. A circumstance that Carrie found herself in when she was busted for selling heroin in Ithaca, New York, where she was a student at Cornell. Her memoir, is Corrections in Ink, which takes us from her struggles as a young woman trying to make it in the world of figure skating, through her downward spiral into heroin addiction, her time in prison, and finally to her life as an award-winning investigative reporter. Let's listen to our conversation. Welcome to talk with us today about your memoir, Corrections in Ink. But before we talk about what you chronicle in this memoir, I think I'd like to begin with where you're at today and the work you're doing as a journalist covering the prison system and the indignities and injustice individuals experience while they're incarcerated.
1: Yes. I mean, I write about this a lot. I I work for the Marshall Project, which is a nonprofit news outlet that covers only criminal justice. Um, So as it turns out, our very broken criminal justice system gives um, more than enough fodder for uh, multiple reporters to write about full time.
0: And it seems that in your work, you have highlighted a lot of bad things that happen to people, a lot of uh, indignities that they experience from not having teeth, not getting dentures, to really what the pandemic did inside the prison system. And I I wonder if you could just give us a little, a little bit of that.
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean, what you mentioned with the dentures, for instance. When I first started um, covering criminal justice, I it started because I was already at that point a few years into being a reporter, and I'd mostly been covering general assignment and breaking news. And my editor said, hey, so you know, the death penalty reporter here has retired. Um, I was at the Houston Chronicle at that point where there is enough capital punishment still going on that it is enough to be almost an entire beat. And, um, you know, my editor said, hey, do you maybe want to take over some of that coverage? And I said, sure. And one of the things that I did was I started trying to meet with people who, you know, knew about death row and knew people on death row and could tell me some about the concerns there beyond just the, you know, following the litigation. And one of the first meetings I set up was with a pair of murderabilia dealers who, you know, sell various serial killer related swag, you know, toenail clippings from people who have killed people and um, hand tracings from serial killers, things like that. And when I was talking to them, one of them sort of casually mentioned, hey, so, you know, guys on death row are going to all get dentures. And I was shocked because where I had done time in New York, you got dentures. You know, if you didn't have teeth, you could get dentures. And it didn't occur to me that in Texas that it would be different, that they would potentially deny an entire body part to people in prison. So I started poking around and I asked the spokesman the next day and he said, no, no, we're not. Nothing's changing. Nobody's getting dentures. And I spent the next 11 months investigating, looking for people who couldn't get dentures, collecting their grievances, you know, the the medical records, the documentation of the fact that they couldn't get it and why they'd been denied these things. And I collected policies going back a couple decades, and I collected some data about how many people were or were not getting dentures and how that had changed over time. And after 11 months, I ended up writing a story about this practice. And it really incensed one state legislator in particular who leaned on the prison system to do better. And they made a few changes, but one of them was to buy a 3D printer and start 3D printing dentures
0: on site. Amazing. And so a story, your story, made a huge difference.
1: Yeah, in that case, it did. I mean. You know the thing with covering prisons is that these systems are in some ways resistant to change and in some instances they're just not well funded enough to implement changes even if they you know even if the people in charge wanted them so so often when you're writing about prisons it's not going to have that impact or necessarily any impact um but that was one situation in which it actually did
0: well we could talk for a long time about this and I want to get into your memoir which comes back to prison but I want to start with when you were a girl a teenager a young woman you were pursuing a life as a figure skater and you were really driven and I can imagine just as you're driven in your current work um, you were really driven to an extreme and At times, you doubted your ability to achieve at high levels, and it seemed to push you even further into conquering certain jumps, and you got into pairs skating, and you also developed an eating disorder. So tell us about this period of your life, how you got into skating, and what drove you to aim to excel, but also to descend into eating disorders?
1: Well, I got into skating um, mainly because my mom saw an article in the local newspaper about skating lessons um, at the rink and she was like, hey, do you want to try this? And so I did. And it ended up being, you know, out of all the various things that I, you know, the various, you know, normal kid activities that I tried that ended up being the one that sort of stuck. And it can be a really all-consuming sport as you get to higher levels. And so it started with Um, lessons or, you know, practice like once a week, probably, and then, you know, progressed to a few times a week. And by middle school, I was practicing at a rink that was about 45 minutes away. So it was about a 45 minute commute each direction for practice um, after school. And then by high school, I had advanced to the point that I needed to go even further to the University of Delaware, which was about an hour and a half away from where my parents lived but it was one of the major training centers for figure skating at that point. So, you know, they, or my grandparents, or, you know, this one uh, retired truck driver that they hired would drive me to the rink every day um, after school. And I started going to school, you know, in, until like 10 or 11 in the morning. And then I would leave and go to the rink and train all day and be done at five or six and do my homework in the car on the way back. And, you um, this was my life. It didn't really leave a lot of time for sort of normal kid activities or normal socializing, but, you know, predictably skating is a high pressure sport. It's intense. Also being at a lower weight or, you know, not having, you know, hips and boobs can um, make it easier to, you know, rotate. I mean, this is, this is one of the things about like, it's not just about the sort of appearances and the pressure to look thin, which is, one thing but it's also just like a a very real just like mechanical difference like you would see girls who are a little bit older would you know go through puberty and lose jumps they would have a growth spurt or you know they'd suddenly get hips and not be able to rotate as well you know it wasn't just a sort of like appearance thing and and you know and I did pair skating where the guy throws you around and it you know looks all dangerous and stuff and I mean, obviously there's an incentive to being lighter in that case, but aside from all that, there was just, you know, the sort of mechanics of the sport. So yeah, there were, there were some pressures. And I mean, I think I knew, I had a sense that there were expectations here, um, you know, from my parents, for my coach, things like that. And um, I was, I don't know, obsessive, intense, uh, a perfectionist. And I think all of that sort of adds up to being a little bit of a recipe for Uh, for problems. And in my case, problems meant eating disorders. Um, I was also struggling a lot with depression from a pretty young age, though. Um, So I think the eating disorders only exacerbated that.
0: I wonder if you also experienced while you were skating, maybe a a relief or a a release of some sort. Later in the book, when you're in jail, sometimes it, it seems like you think about flying through the air or being able to execute a jump. And I, I wonder if at the time that there was something about the activity and when you were doing it that was freeing or, or liberating in some way.
1: Yeah, and I think it, it felt that way particularly because as a kid, you know I mean, kids generally don't have a lot of freedom or agency. And I think especially as a kid in a sort of tightly controlled environment with some pretty strict parents, skating was a place where I was much more in control and I felt like I had freedom to do things that, you know, a lot of people simply weren't able to do.
0: And during this whole time, you also were excelling in school and keeping all that together while walking down the street and vomiting behind bushes. It's like there's this very public part of what you're doing, but this very shameful thing that you're doing at the same time. Then your partner, you're involved in pairs skating. He dumps you. He gets another partner. And this was really a shattering experience that seemed to contribute to your downward slide that eventually led to a pretty s- serious suicide attempt. And and so I wonder how that act of being kind of pushed out of something that was maybe even holding you up led to a downward slide for you and spiraling into greater drug use.
1: Yeah. Um. Well, when my pair partner decided to branch out and find another partner, that was after the second year that we competed at nationals together. And, you know, the thing is, figure skating is the sort of sport where there are so many more women than men that, you know, he could easily find a partner the next day if he wanted to. And for me, it could take weeks or months or never. And, you know, and he did find a partner pretty immediately. And for me, as weeks turned into months, I realized that I was going to have to be taking a season off. And even then, it wasn't clear if I would ever find another partner. And, um, you know, I I thought a, a year or two off in a sport like skating seemed like that was the end. And, you know, this is also a sport, of course, where you're being told that you're getting too old from as young an age as you can remember. Um, I remember there was one older skater who was 23 and people referred to her as the old lady. Um, And, you know, so you're very cognizant that your career has a very tight timeline and a year or two off could be the end of it. You know, I I just fell apart at that point. Figure skating was my whole life. It was my whole identity. It was my social circle. It was you know the future that I imagined for myself. and at seventeen, I was already kind of volatile and not equipped to handle that loss. Um, I mean, obviously looking back, I realized that was not the end of my life. You know, as an adult, I understand that. but you know, as as a teenager and a you know and a teenager who was already struggling with some mental health issues and you know, was not well adjusted in a lot of ways um I did not understand that and it was in the months after my skating partnership fell apart that I got into drugs and it wasn't like I did you know it wasn't like I you know smoked pot and it was a gateway drug and I you know suddenly found myself doing hard drugs like it was pretty much like I think I smoked pot like once and then did ecstasy and then immediately went to heroin because. I was just in an incredibly self-destructive place. I mean, I think I had been in a fairly self-destructive place between the eating disorders and the depression, but without the skating um, to sort of be the glue that held me together and kept it from getting worse, you know, I I, I really just fell apart completely.
0: And you get into prostitution and and stealing. How did you... And I don't know, maybe you were so loaded the whole time that how how did you somehow contextualize or, or normalize these activities in with who you are at the time, who you were at the time, um, that, that you were able to live on the streets essentially for a time. And so can you talk about that? And it did seem like a rather rapid descent for you.
1: Um, yes, it was. I mean, you know, I, I very abruptly fell apart, but in terms of how I sort of contextualize how I thought of myself, I mean, I just didn't care. I wasn't particularly interested in being alive. It just, you know, I was young and volatile and dramatic and I thought my life was over. Um, so I, I don't think I really was sort of thinking about how this changes how I see myself or anything. I just didn't want to see myself. I just didn't want to continue to exist. But I think I just, you know, I, I wasn't quite at the point of actively trying to end it. So I was just engaging in incredibly risky, self-harming behavior instead.
0: Eventually, you, um, and well, even during some of this time, it seems like, you were trying to maintain school, but eventually you you end up in Ithaca, New York, where you're going to school at Cornell. But there also you make some pretty bad choices, both in your companions, your partner, and your boyfriend, um, all the while kind of holding down your classwork and, and working at the school paper, but getting deeper into like dealing drugs. And that was kind of a pivotal point in your life where uh, that eventually led to you being arrested. So talk a little bit about about that period. Well, I mean,
1: after, after skating fell apart, I, um, I started school at Rutgers and I sort of bumbled my way through college there. You know, I was sober at times and I was often not. And, you know, I would do a semester or two on and then maybe take a semester off. And in the semesters that I was still in school, I was doing well, well enough that after a few years, when the relationship I was in um, ended, I could consider transferring elsewhere because it didn't look on paper like I was the sort of train wreck that I was. Mm -hmm. And so I transferred and, you know, I got into Cornell and at first, when I was there, I went there without any sort of drug connection. So I was, um, I wouldn't say sober, but I was doing less drugs just because I didn't know where to get them initially. Um, but I was definitely also in a, a still very dark place. Um, and that first semester was pretty tough. And by the end of it, I very actively did not want to be alive. And I jumped off a bridge in, in an effort to kill myself. Um I'd gotten into a pretty abusive relationship. Um, My grandmother had died that semester. I wasn't fine making friends. I hated the cold. It seemed like I had no idea um, what the point of any of that was. And I had in some ways just sort of never filled the hole in my life where skating had been. And I just you know, got in one particular fight and, you know, the person I was dating sort of more or less, you know, urged me to, you know, go do it or, you know, just dared me. I don't even know how to quite describe how he was the the tone of voice there. But in any case, communicated that he didn't care. And um, and so I was just like, all right, right, I'm, you know, I have screwed up everything. Um, and I went and jumped off one of the gorges that Ithaca is so well known for. And instead ended up breaking my back. Or not breaking my back, my fractured my back. It's not, you know, broken, but I um, I fractured my back in a few places and was in a back brace for almost a year. But I lived. And, you know, that was not any sort of wake up call because, you know, even if you survive a suicide attempt, it does not immediately make you want to live. I, I was still deeply depressed. And, you know, just now depressed and in a back brace, (laughs) Um, you know, but I eventually my back healed. I got back into school and I continued using drugs for the next few years until um, eventually I got arrested.
0: And is it easy or was it easy for you to move from purchasing drugs for yourself to selling them to others?
1: I think the line between, you know, dealers and users is not as sort of firm as people might think it is. Um, Almost everyone who's using drugs is at some point selling them also, Um, you know, whether you're just sort of being a middleman for, you know, getting drugs for your friends or whether you're buying in small quantities and reselling or, you know whether you're as I, you know, was by the end there, um, you know, I was dating someone else and who had a good connection who would give him lots of drugs for us to sell. And it's like, it's just a part of using. I mean, people tell themselves different stories about how they're going to justify it or whether it matters that, you know, if you're selling drugs, um, a lot of people have sort of boundaries like, oh, I'm never going to sell to any kids or I'm never going to start someone on heroin or I'm never going to sell this drug or that drug, you know, so there's different things that people say to make it something that's palatable, that they can live with, that they can, you know, continue to keep justifying what they're doing in order to be getting high.
0: And you eventually get busted. And while you were blasted, I'll say, you know, first of all, that you're able to describe this to us and recollect it, um, but you describe really um, being nearly completely out of it while you were arrested and and processed and and booked into jail. I can't imagine how, I want to say surreal, that that must have been. And then it was dawning on you what was going on. And this was very public in your community, you know, the um, fall of this excellent Cornell student caught selling heroin. So what do you kind of recollect of that time? Just if you could describe your own reactions to all that and how long it really took you to cop to what was ahead of you there?
1: You know, after I got arrested, the the first few days, well, I mean, probably first few months in, in jail were incredibly confusing. Like nobody explains to you what what jail is or how how it works. You know, nobody explains to you how things work in jail. These are things that you just have to sort of ask the people around you and figure out. And, you know, I think this is something I had not really thought through before. Um, how would you know what the rules are and how jail works? But, you know, I got arrested and they take me to jail and they put me in a little holding cell. And I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how long I'd be there um, if I was going to get bail, like if I really was going to get a phone call, like you don't know any of these things. And then, you know, they take me to another room for booking. And, you know, they're asking me all these questions. And they're um, strip searching me telling me to get in a shower, put this smelly shampoo on my hair and stand there in the cold water. That's for delousing. I'd never done a delousing shower before. And, you know, they give you these clothes and a bin And, you know, tell me go that way. And I I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just following and just doing what I'm told. You know, I don't know when I'm going to be expected to be in court next. You know, how I get a lawyer. How do I know if I've gotten a good lawyer? um, Is there a way to get a different lawyer? Like nobody explains any of that. And then, you know, they eventually put me in a cell block and slammed the door shut behind me. And I see all the other women are out and walking around. And I had no idea why I was locked in solitary and they were not. And, you know, these are just, I mean, individually, just little things, you know, like I didn't know how to use the phone. How do I, how do I register to use this phone? How do I tell my family to accept calls? How do I get money put in my commissary account so that I can buy hygiene items? You know, there's all these just little things and you don't know any of them. It's just a completely different world and you don't know any of the very basics about how to live. I mean, the system just really doesn't care if you understand it. And, you know, I obviously picked it up along the way, but I think that looking back, I'm even more struck by how sort of deeply confusing a first brush with, you know, incarceration is to someone that comes in really knowing
0: nothing about that world. It is another world with, as you described, you don't know what the rules are because sometimes they're not fixed or or steady or they're changing or it depends on who the guard might be. And it didn't take long for you. It seemed like you pretty early on observed that there were um, very few sidebars in the treatment of prisoners. And you talk about overhearing some guards talking about withholding water from a prisoner. And one of them saying, well, gee, you know, isn't that a bad thing to do? And, um, you had this realization, this observation that, um, no, people aren't, uh, necessarily regarded even as, as individuals and human beings in this situation.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think that example that you bring up is a, you know, good example of that. This was after I'd been in Jail for, I don't know, maybe 10 months, and then I got transferred to state prison. And on the first morning in state prison, there was a bunch of us new intakes who were waiting to be transferred to another prison. And We were overhearing uh, two of the guards talking and they were talking about this woman who was in solitary and she had taken a dump on a mess hall tray and pushed it back out the slot at the guards. And I don't know why she did that. I don't know if she was having a mental break or if she was just retaliating for bad treatment or um, if she was just mean or, um, you know, if she'd just been in solitary too long and was breaking. I have no idea but she did that. And in response, the guards turned off the water in her cell. And the two of them that were standing near us were talking about the fact that that had happened. And one of them was like, Oh, you know, well, what's, what's she going to drink? What's she going to do for water? And the other one said, well, she can drink out of the toilet. If it's good enough for my dog, it's good enough for her. And, um, and hearing that was, I, I mean, it just rang in my ears. I, you know, I, I can still hear that today because it was so striking And it was one of those moments where it really hit home how much jail and prison are just their own kingdom and sort of anything goes. People in charge can do whatever they want, just like, you know, little monarchs.
0: I'm talking with Carrie Blankinger and her book is Corrections in Ink. I want to talk a little bit more about your time in prison and your time out of prison, but... I also want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book, because some of the things we've talked about, your figure skating, your time in those years after that and before going to prison, I mean, when the book opens, we, we know you're going to jail, and the way you structure your chapters to um, go back and forth in time a bit really creates a sense of tension for the reader. And I wonder how you came up with telling your story that way. In some ways, this
1: reflects like how you're remembering things in jail. So my I start off by every other chapter in the beginning is alternating between moving forward through the chronology from my arrest through my journey through jail and the alternating chapters are backstory. And I think that in some, to some degree that reflects what it feels like, like you're in jail and you're remembering back to your life before jail. Also, I think that part of it was, um, you know, it was a very disorienting time for me. And it sort of felt like that reflected the mental state of it all, like both the confusion of incarceration and, you know, the many foggy years of drug use before that. Um, But then there was also just the sort of practical reason that I felt like if I started the book with my whole backstory before getting to the jail like that's a very different book and I felt like the the readers who who might read that book might not be the readers that would want to read the rest of it so I I kind of wanted to sort Mm -hmm. of signal up front like what kind of book you're getting here, not a book that starts one way and then just sort of abruptly shifts. Um, a few chapters in also like those backstory chapters are really dark in places and um, I think that would have been a lot to just do those like boom 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 without um the without other chapters in between although I mean I think it's kind of <laughs> telling that I'm in that framing I guess the uh the jail chapters are the lighter
0: chapters. <laughs> <laughs> the- that is a way to way to put it. Um, you know, it got me wondering though about the life of other athletes that we've seen highlighted in in many ways of late, but also of of students. Um, you know, here you were a student and you were even holding down jobs, I mean, or working for the school paper or writing, submitting assignments. And I just wonder if this is a problem in universities all over the place of um, students snorting Adderall and um, having maybe heavier drug habits than we're aware of.
1: I mean, I think that there's sort of this trope of you know of kids in college using Adderall sometimes you know recreationally or or sometimes more for more or less the intended purpose and just to, you know without being prescribed it um but i don't think that um kids using adderall like that is necessarily um any connection to addiction because addiction is a different thing addiction is not just using a drug um even if you're using it you know to study or you're using it to stay up all night on a friday night and party um that's not the same thing as addiction um so i i would be careful not to lump those things together you know not all drug use or misuse is addiction
0: you stayed sober in prison but not everybody does it sounds like
1: yeah there's a lot of drugs in in prison um you know when i was locked up i could get um heroin delivered to my bedside with a needle if i if i wanted and and that's true elsewhere i mean i think the prisons that i was in actually had fewer drugs than a lot of the prisons that i report on now so you know i think that people commonly believe that sending someone to jail or prison will ensure that they have to stay sober but that's just not the
0: case the women that you were incarcerated with at these various institutions it seems like there is an attempt at to just be human with hair and makeup and small gifts and kindnesses shown to each other though that's not always the case i mean there is bad behavior you experienced some of it but talk about how women use the very few resources uh, available to them to have some sort of identity while they're incarcerated
1: one of the things about incarceration is that you know you're some of the ways in which you might identify or um, view yourself, some of the ways in which you might sort of visually define yourself are simply not available to you. Like you can't have a sort of unique look in prison in the same way. And not that your identity is entirely shaped by your appearance, but I mean, that sort of ability to have individual identity is, is one of the things that is taken away. So women would try to find it in other places. And, you know, in jail, we weren't allowed to have makeup, but people would, you know, make it from whatever supplies were on hand, you know, the fireball candies could be used for um, blush and, you know, people would use colored pencils to try to make eyeliner by, you know, heating them dipping them in in hot water and trying to drag them across their eyes to make eyeliner. And some people use Kool-Aid or, you know, crystal light mix and Vaseline to make, uh, you know, lip gloss. And, you know, these were some of the ways that people would, I don't know, it, it was sort of like a subversive way of helping to create a sense of self in a system that is designed to make everyone the same.
0: And you describe um, having your hair cut even um, with nail clippers, but also the kindnesses you would um, do with each other of making small gifts, but out of like the thread from your prison uniform or something like that. Or it seems like at one point your girlfriend tries to make some birthday ice cream and That must be a very, uh, I want to say, community-building thing within the jail itself to be engaging in these kind of activities or sharing these types of learning this sort of way of being in this other reality.
1: I mean, yeah, but I mean, these are also things that you would do in the free world. They just don't require the sort of, sneaking and creativity and make them happen. But I mean, you know, these aren't like different behaviors. I mean, you still give your friends gifts in the free world. Um, I think there is a different connection among people who have done time, especially those who've done time together, because I think there's sort of naturally a connection between people who have survived the same traumatic experience together. And I mean, I think you see that even with I mean, I live in Houston and I think that everyone who made it through Harvey and, you know, Hurricane Harvey several years ago and, you know, dealt with all the flooding there. I mean, that, that's a sort of shared trauma that is a language that people are all sort of conversant in if they were here at that time. And prison is that, but on a much bigger scale, because that's not, you know, a, a week of, of hurricane that's years of your lives where you were, you know, all subjected to the same sort of, treatment and loss of dignity and loss of agency and self.
0: Yes. We're running out of time, but I think I, I also want to talk a little bit about something you bring up in the book, the whole notion of white privilege, even that you experienced uh, as a, a white educated woman, take it from there, the, that even for you, you experienced a uh, sense of privilege.
1: I think that at this point, it's it's somewhat well understood that the criminal justice system ends up disproportionately snaring black and brown people. Um, they live in more heavily policed communities, and there's been plenty of studies that they are, you know, more likely to end up doing more time for the same crimes as their white counterparts. But I think all that sort of data was not as commonly known then. And I certainly didn't have access to it. You can't Google that stuff when you're locked up. but I I think even when I was doing time there were signs like you could see some of the ways you know some of the things that we were all aware of in terms of how people would get treated differently based on race. I think it wasn't until I got out that I was really able to dig in um to the data and the research and appreciate how the individual anecdotes that I had seen or um lived through would add up to a system in which it was broadly true that Black and brown people were going to have a harder time. We're going to end up doing more time, and we're going to have a harder time reentering society afterwards.
0: And your reentry into society after you did your time, and I sense that you might have even been surprised that uh, people were willing to take a chance on you at this point, a convicted felon.
1: Um. Yes. I. I mean. I think. In some ways, I'm, I'm still surprised when people are. But yeah, I mean, especially when you first get out, because there's a lot of people that when they know you just got out of prison, they sort of look at you in a certain way, you know, as if they expect that you're at any moment going to just go back. Like you're probably just gonna screw up again. There's a lot of people that sort of seem to regard your presence in the free world as temporary. And, you know, those can be people that care about you and mean well, but, you know, people just know what the recidivism rates are, and they know how, um, how few people uh, stay sober and stay out of prison, and you can feel that. And then when you find people who are actually able to completely disregard your past and not view you in that way, like those first few interactions where that it really does not play a role in the relationship they stand out they mean a lot
0: I want to end our conversation by talking about another I I won't say person but it was your dog Charlotte who was there before you left you had such concern for her when when you went to jail and she was there when you got back Charlotte was, you know, the dog that
1: I'd had for a few years before prison, before I got arrested. And then when I got arrested, I had no idea what had happened to her. And it turned out that the property manager managed to find a couple that was willing to watch her for at least a few days. And then it turned out that they had a dog of their own that, you know, she got along with really well. And so they've just incredibly generously agreed to keep her for however long I was locked up. And they said they'd give her back, but I didn't really believe that. I was like, there's no way that they, this couple, these strangers are just gonna keep this dog and then give her back in the end. They did though. I mean, I got out of prison and the first place I went was to go see my dog. And she didn't recognize me at first, but eventually, eventually I spent enough time around her and I brought her back to some of the places that I had lived with her before my arrest, and I could see the moment where it clicked, and she remembered me. And um, I eventually brought her back home, and then I became good friends with the couple, uh, Floriana and David. I actually saw them last weekend when I was visiting Ithaca, and I stayed with them, and they've been like a second family to me.
0: Corrections in Ink, Carrie Blankinger, thank you for talking to us about the book and about your life so openly. Thanks for having me. My conversation with Carrie Blakenger, and the book is Corrections in Ink, published by St. Martin's Press. I am Suzanne Lang with a novel idea on KRCB, Northern California Public Media especially in light of what we see happening in Florida and other places where books are being attacked for revealing too much of our social and cultural history, taken out of libraries for being too candid about the human condition, about who we are as people in a multiracial society. Diane Grayer and Anya Neela Montefalcon bring us a response with their book, Kina's First Speech, Our Blackness Will Never Fade. This is a story of young Kina's awakening within the Black Lives Matter movement. Greer is a psychotherapist, an author and playwright, and co-host of Living Proof, part of KRCB's Outbeat Radio. Montefalcon is an illustrator and attends high school in Sonoma County, California. Here is our conversation. Diana, why don't you tell us what inspired you to write this book and the audience it's aimed at?
2: Okay, thank you, Suzanne, for having us here. This keenest first speech came about uh, 2020 when the murder of George Floyd and all the Black Lives Matter movement was going on. I've been wanting to do something for the Black community and myself, and I was looking for opportunity. What would inspire me? uh, to write a black production. So this all started with a black production. Uh, I'm a playwright, I'm a director, producer, and I've done plays. And so I've been wanting to do something really powerful for, um, me as a black woman person. Um, and so I wrote this black production called our blackness will never fade. And as I was thinking, it's like, okay, I'm going to do this production and I always like to have some merchandise with it, you know, like mugs and t-shirts. So I made t-shirts. Our blackness will never fade on the t-shirt. And so then I was saying, I want to touch, this topic is so delicate and so hard for people to talk about. There's so much fear out in the world around race and talking about race and racism. So I wanted to write, um, a book for children and also for teachers and for parents to talk with their kids about race. And so that was my motivation. I wanna have people have access to a way of talking about race and racism that we know in America and around the world based on 2020 Black Lives Matter movement all around the world, that there's a lot of racism going on still and people are not talking about it. And that's what I've learned in my community. So I wanted to write Kina's first speech. I wanted uh, to show empowerment for black girls and brown girls and uh, just kids in general to have opportunity to share their voices and know that they have a voice. Because kids are smart. As a therapist for over 25 years, I know kids are wise, and I was wise as a kid. I saw what was going on around me. So kids are smart. And I wanted Keena to uh, share her journey of how it feels to be hated because of the color of her skin. And so that's why I wrote Keena's first speech, Our Blackness Will Never Fade.
0: And in the book, and I should say that Ani has illustrated the book, and I want to talk to you in just a moment about uh, how you approached the illustrations and, and the collaboration with Diana. But Kina, the character in the book is a sixth grader, maybe I think she's a sixth grader, and is talking to her mom and talking to her class about how disturbed she is by how she is treated for the uh, simply for the color of her skin, and she's persistent. She's persistent with her mom, and and she's persistent in her classroom talking about it. And that really struck me that it was through that persistence that she was able to open up that communication with her mother and and with her class, and that her teacher was open to that exploration with Kina and, and with the others in the class. And something that was clear to me as a white person is that we don't always have a language or a common language, or we think we don't have a language to talk with others about this. Or And, and this comes up in the story. when. They're in the classroom and the students are at first a little like unsure of how to communicate about this. And yet it seems like Kina's expression is just the approach is simple and direct.
2: Yes, we would love it, Suzanne, to have it be the way Kina is on her journey, you know, around having her teacher be there to support. That's what teachers are there for, I believe, to educate, to be present with whatever's going on uh, with their kids, no matter race, um, gender issues, uh, sexual orientation issues. They need a place to share about who they are. And so we need the openness to talk about it. And kids are holding so much. Uh, We need more consciousness around how we treat each other. And so the reason why I had a sixth grader um, is kind of in between, but Suzanne, honestly, all my books are for adults and kids. They learn together around communication, race, sexual orientation, just about loving each other instead of hating. So yeah, we want a society where uh, teachers can be able to be honest and free to talk about this stuff because their kids are holding so much i mean this is 2022 right <laughs> and kids are calling each other names principals don't know how to talk about race yeah it's it's hard out there
0: and kina makes a point of objecting to the term minority and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that
2: you know suzanne you know a writer kind of puts her thread or his thread or their thread into the story line right I have this preacher in me, okay, <laughs> and so every time I hear the word "minority," it just gives me this uh, because the way it's spoken, it's that subliminal kind of thing. The way it's spoken, it kind of comes at you like you're down here at the bottom, and white people are up here at the top, or you know, all these categories are at the bottom. It just feels that way internally for me. Um, minority and majority in different situations, that's fine. But when it relates to people, especially Black people, because we've been on the bottom for so long that I don't want, I want to like language, you know. She talks about the Black sheep and she talks about the Black cat. It's always been negative. And so I'm trying to change the minds and the thinking of people so that um, they could have some sensitivity to how that word impacts people. Yeah. Yeah. So.
0: so the book is really illustrated with these, I will say lovely illustrations that have a lot of subtlety to them. And Ani and Neela, I'm wondering if you will talk about how this collaboration between the two of you began and how you worked with the material to come up with your drawings.
3: Well, it started in freshman year, I think, of 2021. I was in art class. We were online. We were doing distance learning and it was a normal year for me. I wasn't expecting it, but my art teacher uh, asked if I wanted to become an illustrator for an author. And I was a little bit hesitant at first and nervous. But I agreed to it. And um, she gave me the email to Miss Grayer and from there is how I did with her and during the, the illustrating.
0: Did you have a back and forth? Um, did you mock things up in a way and and share them with Diana and talk about what you were trying to achieve with each other?
2: Yes. Yes, yes. Yes, uh, it was really wonderful to get the call, the email that uh, Anai was interested in doing this book. And I was just so excited because let me just back up one second, Suzanne, because what I try and do with my work, especially like the illustrations from all of my eight books, I always try and reach out to some young person to give them an opportunity to illustrate and to, just like in my plays, to have them... Just strangers have an opportunity to get this on stage because a lot of people don't have the opportunity to. Mm-hmm. So I was so pleased. At the time, Anai was 14, so she turned 15 during this process. So she was really young. But yeah, so once I page date the book and I give it to um, the illustrator Anai, in this situation, um, I have an idea of what I want on each page of the book. And so I kind of give that to the illustrator Anai. And so she, we, we play around with it, like the cover. I say, okay, this is what I'm looking at. And I try and sketch out the cover like myself and I'm not, I, please, I'm not an illustrator. So, um, so then we go back and forth with that. If I can get that, that cover design just right, um, it's powerful for me. And so we went back and forth a little bit, but not that much. Anai was just like so sharp and so able to hear and listen. And she was, the most important thing was she loved the story. She understood the story. And that was really key to make the process of us collaborating on the illustrations easier.
0: Anai, do you have anything to add about that? I'm really curious about your process and how you work. can you talk about that a little bit?
3: When I was working with Ms. Greyer, um, I would listen to what she would like on the illustrations and try to visualize what I should put. We would talk back and forth through Gmail, and I would set a time aside to be able to work on the illustrations because I did have schoolwork, but I really like doing these illustrations.
0: Her. Do you work with, um, are, are in a digital medium or are you sketching and painting? Tell, tell us a little bit because they have a real unique feel to them and I thought there was a real emotional power to them as well. So, what is the medium you're working in?
3: Well, I usually do paper, but this time. I had received a tablet, a drawing tablet from my uncle, and I wanted to try something new. And so I used a tablet to to illustrate.
0: So you were actually learning a new tool while you were doing these. Yes. Huh. And um, I can't tell you how much I just loved the the drawings in, in the book. And so I hope that we see more of your work at some point in the future. Um, anything else you want to say about that collaboration between the two of you?
3: Um, when we were working together, we had fun. We talked back and forth and we sort of connected as two people having the same ideas about what would go on or what happened. And that's one of the things that helped us get through this, this art. I don't know how to explain it. Like her, her work is like art. Oh, that's
0: beautiful. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. You, you are explaining it. And what was it like for both of you really to then see this put together into the book? It it must've been pretty remarkable to see.
3: It was, and it was a great experience while
2: doing it. I went over once I got him uh, out of the box. I made an appointment with Anaya. I said, I got him, I got him, I got him. I was so excited. It brings tears to my eyes now because to see it, you know, the journey, Suzanne, of talking back and forth, getting the illustrations right, then sending it all to the designer. And, you know, the process. And so when I got it out of the, after I ordered copies and got them out of the box, oh my gosh, I was running around the house because it's, it's, it's not just the book itself, but the meaning, all the stuff, all the important things that went on in this story that goes on in everybody's life. A lot of people, you know, black folks for sure. And clearly the other cultures in the book, um, they talk about their experiences and in, in America, in the world as well. So, um, yeah, I was really excited. And so when I met with um, Anai, her parents were there and I brought some sparkling cider and, you know, we kind of like, this is for you. I gave her some books and this, and it was just beautiful to like, oh, look, we did this, you know, and it's, it's really powerful. I was really excited.
0: I'm happy for the work you've both done together on this book because it's a simple uh, book to read, but it's filled with, I think, a lot of emotion and it's a real call to Black youth, but to all people, I think, to um, say their truth, the truth of, of their experience so I am here with Anya Neela Montefalcon, the illustrator of Diana L. Grayer's Kina's First Speech, Our Blackness Will Never Fade. Thank you both for being with us today.
2: Thank you, Suzanne.
0: My conversation with writer Diana Grayer and illustrator Anya Neela Montefalcon on their collaboration, Kina's First Speech, our blackness will never fade. Earlier, we spoke with Carrie Bleginger on her memoir, Corrections in Ink. I am Suzanne Lang, and I thank you for listening. We have production assistance from Mark Prell and James Morey. I thank James for all the support he has given me in getting our show on the air. James, I'm sorry to see you move on, and I wish you much success and fulfillment in your future work. I so appreciate your professionalism. We are a production of Lit Radio and Northern California Public Media. Listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast at krcb.org. Follow the program or podcast links. Download the KRCB app and listen anytime. We're a novel idea.